Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast, After Dark. It is After Dark somewhere. I know you're going to tell me it's not After Dark. In fact, it's many, many hours till dark, but it is much later than we usually do this. If it were December, it would be After Dark now at this time of day. If it were December, I believe that is the subjunctive tense. It might be. I think it is. I was never good at the naming of the tenses. (laughs) Neither was I, except in this moment I may have shined. We are Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying, and we are here with episode, you got this, 121, yes. which is not divisible by seven, even though some part of me wants it to be. Seven? Yeah. Right. Yes. Right. But it's not prime. Right. Right. Why does seven come up? Because of 21. I see. Um, okay. Yeah. Also because of the Bible, where it shows up regularly. And I think I can make a strong argument that the length of the week is an adaptation, but another time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Yeah, anything else? Well, let's see. Oh, yes, it is. It is five o'clock, one sixth of a time zone to our east. Am I right about that? One sixth of a time zone to our east. Uh, yeah, less even by this time because we got an even later start than we uh, remaining to. Our producer was otherwise engaged. It seems that he was productively engaged, which you would expect from a producer. Fair point. And uh, we will uh, we will come back with more news of that at a later time. Uh, for now, yes. Uh, let us let us. Embark. Stop the dithering. <laughs> Is that what we're doing? I thought you were going to tell me that that's not how time zones work, because, of course, that's not how time zones work. But yet, no, at this point in the day, you're willing to go along with it's, it. It's not how time zones work, but I'm sure someone who is concerned about uh, whether or not it's time for them to have a drink does the math that way. Right. Let's put it to yeah. this way. The question of is it 5 o'clock there already is dicier than it's almost 5 here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was more dithering, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, we are going to talk about um, totalitarianism. <laughs> well, sure. It's Saturday. And um, and uh, a little bit about Hannah Arendt and uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn and the things that live on our ceiling, according to our dear Tabby Fairfax. And for those listening and not watching that won't make any sense but um we are going to talk a little bit apparently about the together trial uh, which was finally published the the one of the arms was finally published this week after it was in fact kind of half announced back last summer and um let's see we've got a we've got a few other things to talk about um oh as I wanted to get to last week, but we were too busy explaining what a woman is, uh, we have a there's an op-ed published in BMJ um, calling for the need for evidence-based medicine. So in light of uh, things like the other trial, I think it's a good moment to go there. Yeah, actually. Uh, so I don't know in what order we're going to we're going to do that, but let's do our announcements first. We learned this week that the Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, our book that uh, was published uh, six months ago and is continuing to sell very well in English, um, is continuing to, the translation rights continue to be sold in other languages, but the Spanish language version is going to be on sale as of June, I think it was first, at least early June. I actually may be conflating two publication dates now, sometime in June. And uh, the pre-sales are available on Amazon. It's got a cool... Totally different cover. You can show it here if you want to, Zach, um, but you don't have to. So I know don't because I need my computer back now. So um, never mind. Um, don't, don't show it. It's actually, the more I think of it, the cleverer that cover seems to me. But 
That was one of the covers that we um, rejected from our English language version. Right, but it's uh, it's cool. Yeah, yeah. It, it, uh, it, it, yes, it you should. Given that your father is talking is about talking it, talking about yes. it. Right. <laughs> yes. This will no doubt not satisfy the people just listening as much as the people. Why don't you explain? Watching. It? Well, it is a uh, like a trident um, with a uh, an arrow as the middle fork of the trident and something USB symbol ish. Uh, symbolizing the hyper-novelty of the moment and also suggesting phylogeny and one lineage going forward into the future while others have dead-ended at a square in a circle, which raises questions about familiar relations, but it's, it's deep. Well, I, I, don't, I don't get USB from this at all. I get, I, I get the phylogenetic tree and uh, the, uh, the archaic technology combined with you know something modern, but um, I did not. I did not see the USB association. USB, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, it's cool. It's 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 cool, and you know the British uh, cover has a yeah a different uh, a, a different look. And I'm just talking here until I can get my computer back, so I can know what I'm supposed to say next. Because we're in that part of the show where I just am supposed to have my notes, and it's not working. It's is not it? working. I'm have to. There we go. All right. Um. So, so um, the French version is also going to be published around the same time. We are, are we, we're live on Odyssey, right, Zach? Okay, we are live on Odyssey and YouTube and the chat is live on Odyssey. And uh, we will, after this first uh, hour of the show, be doing a live Q&A. We encourage you to ask questions uh, at darkhorsesubmissions.com, www.darkhorsesubmissions.com. Uh, we are. Uh, we always answer one question from our Discord community, which you can get access to by joining either of us at either of our Patreons. Uh, this morning, you had one of your Patreon conversations. Fantastic conversation with the Coalition of the Reasonable. Yeah. Well, um, you would. You would hope. Well, no, yeah. you would expect them to be reasonable, but they are well beyond that. Ah, and yes, so that's the lowest, that's the that's low the bar. Low, that's yeah, the, the, the bar for entry. That is the bar for entry, yeah. but uh, yes, they uh, routinely exceed that limit. That's so anyway, and you yeah, have was, another and you have another conversation tomorrow. Tomorrow, it's, and I can say very little about how that will go other than history suggests it will also be excellent. That's excellent. That that is terrific. Let's see. Um, on my Substack this week on Natural Selections, I published a uh, piece with the, the similar title to what we talked about on the podcast last week. I think we titled the podcast What is a Woman? And my piece uh, was I'm a Woman subtitle and a biologist so i went there um if you're looking for that kind of thinking in writing you can go to naturalselections.substack.com um and boy there's just so many more announcements but we're a little bit uh discombobulated this week i've always wondered about this word it implies that we were combobulated earlier right and i remember i never i can recall never being Combobulated. Or bobulated. Right. Nor does anybody say that they are combobulated when they intend to convey that they've got it all under control, their ducks are in a row. Yeah. And come, I mean, even just bobulated, like, you know, you haven't even come together around it yet. You're just simply bobulated. It's your nature. Oh, it's a Sarah Starr thing, isn't it? I don't know. What's that? Uh, That it's the fundamental nature of the thing, right? As opposed to a temporary state of the thing. That's the distinction you're drawing, I believe. Is Sarah Star a person? No, Sarah and a star. <laughs> These Spanish verbs to be. <laughs> right. They're differential usage. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a moment out. Did our producer also hear Sarah Star? <laughs> he says Sarah Star. 
So technically, this is not a failure for you to recognize the Spanish construction and relevance of the whole thing, and therefore you can remain as our translator into Spanish for the book. I, which I, of course, am not, because no. I've never made such claims at all in any way. But I don't understand, now that I know what you're trying to say, ser versus estar, what the connection to populated would be here. Because you were suggesting that bobulated could just simply be how you are, rather than at this moment I'm bobulated. No, that's not what I was suggesting. Oh. I was suggesting you could have a state of being bobulated, but that is lesser than being combobulated, in which you've come together with your various oh, bobulations. Oh, it's an emergent bobulated. <laughs> to be discombobulated, yeah. maybe just... Just be a reversal to the state of population. At what rate are people dropping off <laughs> so the viewership quickly. of the podcast? As we so parse our way. USB. Yeah. Oh, the whole thing is the USB symbol. Yeah. Oh, I didn't. I Wow. Yeah, I totally didn't get that. That's great. Very excellent. Okay. It does not. It should, as the USB symbol connote the repeated flipping of the uh, cords <laughs> to try which to figure out which to way it goes in. But, yeah. yeah. Um, awesome. Okay. Uh, let's just, let's do our, let's do our ads. Let's do that. Shall we do that? Yeah. Okay. We have three ads this week, as we often do. We are grateful to our sponsors for helping giving, give us some, uh, some independence and some freedom. And we have two sponsors this week that we have come to you with before. You will recognize them, but our first is brand new to us. It is Eat Sleep. Eat Sleep is new to us, as I just said. Now I'm reading the script. Okay. <laughs> we are very excited to seamless. know. Seamless. <laughs> so seamless. And we are very excited to know about them and to have their support. <clears throat> Good sleep is a game changer. As we discuss in the sleep chapter of Hunter Gatherer's Guide, intelligent life that found its way to Earth might be surprised by a lot of what it found on our planet, but not by the fact of sleep or dreams. Sleep provides, as, as we argue in the sleep chapter, um, aliens intelligent and skilled enough to have gotten here would surely both sleep and dream. Sleep provides all manner of necessary things to us, and without good sleep, we are destined to be unhealthy and unproductive. And yet, more than 30% of Americans struggle with sleep, and temperature is one of the main reasons. It is well known that individuals and couples who sleep together often have different optimal sleep temperatures. Eight sleep allows fine-tuned temperature regulation for both people. Having a cool room and a warm bed is a luxury that Eight Sleep makes easy to obtain. So Eight Sleep makes mattresses, but their, uh, their big deal is the Pro, no, the Pod Pro Cover by Eight Sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. You can add the cover to any mattress and start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees Fahrenheit or as hot as 110 degrees Fahrenheit. Not that I recommend either of those extremes. That's just what you can also do. Also suitable for cooking. <laughs> Apparently, yes. You can have your eggs right in bed with you. The temperature of the cover will adjust each side of the bed based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting dynamically to create the optimal sleeping environment. Eight sleep users apparently fall asleep up to 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, and get more restful sleep overall. I said apparently because these are data. Um, we have not you know, measured our own experience sleeping, but we do have one of these, and it's great. And with 30% more deep sleep on average, according to the data that Eight Sleep has collected, that restorative sleep will likely help with physical recovery, hormone regulation, and mental clarity. And another feature, which they actually didn't write into the script that they were hoping that we'd read, is the alarm feature, uh, which can wake you with either temperature change or slight vibration at the chest level. Uh, and it's so much gentler than a standard sonic alarm. Uh, we are both surprised at how much we appreciate this bed. We were a little, we were, we were not sure. Skeptical. It's a little, it's a little does, high does tech. Bed need to be more technical. Yeah, we 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 tend to go in the opposite direction. We favor less rather than more. But um, 
but this this turns out to be um, pretty great. Yeah, uh, it solves real difficult to solve problems. Mm-hmm. Like if one person likes it hot and the other person likes it cool, if the room is warm, then there's no way for the person who likes it cool to get cool enough because all you can do is reduce the amount of cover and you're in a warm room. But this allows you to take heat out. <laughs> yes, indeed. So go to 8sleep, that's E-I-G-H-T-S-L-E-E-P, 8sleep.com slash darkhorse to check out the pod pro cover and save $150 at checkout. 8sleep ships to the US, Canada, and the UK at this point. All right, our second sponsor this week is Vivo Barefoot, shoes made for feet. Most shoes are made for someone's idea of what feet should be and be constrained by, and usually that someone doesn't actually know feet or what they can do. They presumably have feet, but that doesn't mean they know them. Vivo Barefoot, in contrast, knows feet. These shoes are a revelation. We love them. They're beyond comfortable. The tactile feedback from the surfaces you're walking on is amazing. They cause no pain at all because there are no pressure points forcing your feet into odd positions. They're fantastic. In fact, I've just ordered another pair and one for our younger son, too. Our feet are the products of millions of years of evolution. Humans evolved to walk, move, and run barefoot. But modern shoes that are overly cushioned and strangely shaped have negatively impacted foot function and are contributing to a health crisis, one in which people move less than they might, in part because their shoes make their feet hurt. Vivo barefoot shoes are designed wide to provide natural stability, thin to enable you to feel more, and flexible to help you build your natural strength from the ground up. Foot strength increases by 60% in a matter of months just by walking around in them. The number of people wearing Vivo Barefoots is growing. It's an odd little club, easily recognizable. Once people start wearing these shoes, they don't seem to stop. So go to vivobarefoot.com slash darkhorse to get an exclusive offer of 20% off. Additionally, all new customers get a 100-day free trial so you can see if you love them as much as we do. That's V-I-V-O-B-A-R-E-F-O-O-T dot com slash darkhorse. I'm going to suggest to them the possible slogan, Vivo Barefoot, walk it on. Nice. I like that. It's not bad, yeah. right? I thought it was going to take time to hit you, but no, no, no. you saw it right away. That's great. That was too dismissive earlier. I feel like you need to boost a little bit. <laughs> I've got credit <laughs> that in the was, bank. That was good. That was good. <laughs> All right. Um, our final sponsor today is Public Goods. Public Goods was one of our very first sponsors last year, and we are pleased with them now as we were when we first tried their products. Public Goods can simplify your life as a one-stop shop for everyday essentials. Their ingredients are carefully sourced, high quality, and affordable. Public Goods has coffee and tea, grains and oils like olive and avocado. They've got Castile soap and trash bags and laundry detergent. They have spices and extracts like vanilla and almond, almond, <laughs> almond vinegars and pastas, dishware, glassware. Uh, there's so much at Public Goods to make a meal, including the materials to serve it on. Public Goods products have a great design, too. The aesthetic is simple and clean, and there are no garish colors. Um, Public Goods cares about health and sustainability. Their products are largely free of harmful ingredients and additives, and the ingredients are ethically sourced. Finally, their subscription service is efficient and simple and easy to use. Public Goods members can buy all of their premium essentials in one place. It really is an everything store. For Dark Horse listeners, we have the following offer. Receive $15 off your first Public Goods order with no minimum purchase. They are so confident that you will absolutely love their products and come back again and again that they are giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. Go to publicgoods.com slash darkhorse, use the code darkhorse, at che- or use the code darkhorse at checkout. That is publicgoods, P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com forward slash darkhorse to receive $15 off your first order. All right. You seem to have changed up our background. Well, um, you know.
know, I, I, I just I thought I, I would honor the uh, the person who. Um, so uh, did, did you bring over uh, the their names? The that would have okay. been such good. Planning. So we received this piece of art in the uh, uh, in the mail, and it's it's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's I really appreciate Somebody it. Somebody clearly spent yeah. a great deal of time. Yeah. And uh, anyway. Yeah. So we thank you. Yes, and, we uh, do. Yes. Okay. Where do you want to start? Ah, um, I don't know. We could we could start with the the ivermectin together trial. All right. Issue, and I should say we are not going to exhaustively explore this matter because, for one thing, quite a number of people have done extensive explorations here, and some of them are so excellent that you really owe it to yourself to look at them. So I would include in that Chris Martinson has done uh, an exploration. Uh, Matthew Wanty Crawford has done one. Um, Phil Harper has done one, and I will, we will talk touch on one of the points that he makes uh, in a couple of minutes here. And Alexandros Marinos has also done an, uh, an excellent a couple of analyses, as well as a thread in which he compiles some of the analyses that other people have done. And uh, IVM Meta, you can show my right. you can show my screen here if if you like, which is a, a, a relatively long-standing, long-standing with regard to COVID site uh, has you know has an ongoing exhaustive description of what the various studies show, don't show, what their weaknesses are, et cetera. And um, Zach, if you just put my screen back on for a moment here, um, this with regard to um, Specifically, the Together study, uh, they just have a number, you know, it's, it's an ongoing list, many of which are points that have been made by, for instance, Alexandros and Matthew and Chris and such. Um, but uh, just, just, to, just to look at a couple of them, there are many basic inconsistencies and protocol violations. Um, there's no response to a data request. They've got different, two different death counts. The trial was not blind. Uh, unequal randomization, confounding my time. And then I skipped the second one here, which is um, delayed by six months. And I, I'm going to let you basically talk about this for the most part, uh, the whole thing. But I did want to say that here on IVM Meta, uh, they say the paper was delayed over six months with no explanation. So this is this, um, this, this big study. Um, the results were revealed back in August of 2021. And then I think it was the fluoxamine arm, which was published within a couple weeks. And then nothing. And so there are a lot of people who, upon hearing the results, which basically were uh, ivermectin is useless, you know, don't bother. Uh, we were, you know, we were right all along. Not that that's what the authors here said, but that was the sort of the take in the in the media. Um, many, everyone who cared about this result immediately said, well, you know, I'm going to need to look at the at the analysis. Um, there's not even a way to look at the data because the data still aren't being. Um, produced, but um, the thing wasn't published for six months. And so IVM Meta says um, one possible reason would be rejection from a series of journals, which would be expected given the issues. It's a possibility. We have no idea if that's true. Uh, I, you know, that was not my guess as to why it would have been delayed. But it is remarkable that suddenly this week, everyone is talking about this as if this is, as if this is news. Um, and it was, you know, it was news in August, and now we can see how really unnews it is because the study is so flawed. It's not even unnews; it's anti-news. Yeah. And uh, you know, Phil Harper addresses this very directly, and so I want to um, uh, highlight his analysis. Do you have a, something to show? Yeah, or? he's got it. Well, I actually don't have something to show, but I would advise people to sign up for his Substack. He has a seven-day free trial. You can look at the whole thing. Um, but in any case. He um, talks about. So you can just. I've, the, I've just pulled it up. You've you just can, pulled it up. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, 
So this is. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he, he says uh, the can't add together trial. I would say the can't even keep it together trial. <laughs> so what Ivy Meta raises as the possibility for why this is so delayed, that it was re- rejected from multiple places before the New England Journal of Medicine finally accepted it. The reason that that doesn't quite add up and strikes me as more more generous than uh, than it needs to be mm-hmm. is that were all of the errors here to have been spotted by reviewer after reviewer and journals to have passed on this, that would have forced them to be corrected in a sense. Some of them are so basic. The errors are just simple arithmetic errors, right? That if, if these things were being caught, then it's hard to imagine how it could have landed in such a high-profile journal in such a crazy state. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's really just riddled with errors. Um, So that does suggest that like so much in this landscape of early treatment, COVID public health policy and all, that the distortions here are about something. It's It's the immense gravitational force of some object we cannot see, right? Is that object simply pharma profits? We don't know. But what we know is that nothing works in this landscape like it's supposed to. And one of the things that doesn't work is not only was this delayed, it's not really even delayed. The point is the punchline was given to us. And then the basis for that punchline was delayed by more than six months. So this thing was a weapon in the hands of those who argued that there was no utility to uh, to this particular early treatment, this was a weapon over that entire period without our ability to discover how good a weapon it was or how accurate it was. Mm-hmm. And then upon its release, the point is, okay, suddenly there's all this fanfare and the Wall Street Journal is publishing on the fact that um, this study finally, you know, remember, you were told, randomized controlled trials are the gold standard of science. That's what you were told, mm-hmm. right? Well, here is what you are now told is the largest randomized controlled trial that's been done on this topic. Well, technically, but it wasn't done well. well. I mean, this is this is exactly this is the kind of explicit and intentional and seems category error that we've been talking about across the board, right? Like, well, uh, vaccines have been effective in reducing rates of rates and of and deaths from rabies. Cool. Therefore, anything that we call a vaccine for a particular uh, disease uh, is something that you need. Uh, wait, you know. Right. So even if it were true uh, that randomized control trials were the thing that you absolutely need to demonstrate efficacy, which it's which it's is not, not true, right? Um, but <clears throat> that doesn't mean that anything that calls itself a randomized control trial is done well, um, or you know, is is done well at all. And to your point about you know the Wall Street Journal, you know, it, it, every mainstream outlet is very happy about this result. That ought to be giving us pause. Why are people so pleased that early treatment with with a drug that has a long safety record is not effective against what we are being told is the worst scourge to hit humankind in 100 years? That seems surprising. Um, but then we even have, like, th- this, this headline just struck me as particularly remarkable. So show my screen if you would. Again, Zach, this is from Newsweek. What Joe Rogan has said defending ivermectin as drug is ruled ineffective. Ruled. Yeah. Now, this is a headline author, and headlines are often crazy, and um, you know, presumably it has nothing to do with the person who wrote this, and you can get rid of that because it's now, of course, of course, here it's you know it's showing Trump, right, who has nothing to do at all with ivermectin. In fact, he's pro-vaccine, right? Um, so, um, <clears throat> what 
The headline writer reveals, though, and no one who saw this at Newsweek before putting this up caught, is that they think this is about, it's like a court of law. It's like a standard of, of, of proof like you would find in a court of law, ruled, ruled ineffective. That's not how science works. Science doesn't work by, uh, by democracy, by vote. That's, that's not what should be going on here. And yet, that is clearly what we are seeing as this thing finally gets published and suddenly everyone who was so thrilled to be talking about horse dewormer last summer is back talking about all the same things they've been talking about before without actually point, uh, paying any attention to the fact that the study itself is flawed, you know, I don't even know how many, at least 20 different ways. Yeah, and presumably there are many out there who didn't know what to think, right? Who probably did accept randomized controlled trials are the gold standard of science. You know, nobody having thought through how many things were never exposed to a randomized controlled trial that we know work, yeah. how many things are incapable of being exposed to a randomized controlled trial that we do science in other ways. Mm -hmm. um, but lots of people probably accepted, oh, well, randomized controlled trial is certainly the best kind of science. And so, oh, this is the largest randomized controlled trial done on this topic. Well, what did it say about ivermectin? It says it doesn't work, right? The problem is a couple things. One, randomized and controlled, right? Randomly assigning people to two groups, one of which is a placebo group, which controls for effects that are not part of the treatment, right? This among the errors here are errors that suggest that this was neither randomized nor placebo controlled. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the most, the most curious errors in the entire list is that a huge fraction of the people in the placebo group did not complete the trial, right? They bailed out of the placebo group, right? Much larger than the number who left the treatment group, right? Which either suggests that they, and given the way that dosaging was happening, it was it was relatively it wasn't really blind. It was pretty easy to tell if you which group you were. Well, in. that's one possibility. So in this particular case, the study was done, and people who were sick with COVID—that's how you got into the trial. You mm -hmm. were sick with COVID, um, thought they were potentially going to get treated with mm -hmm. a drug that was reputed to work, right? And in in the place where the trial was done, lots of people were talking about the utility of this drug. So if you were a person looking to get treated, you could join this trial and maybe be treated for free. And then you discover you're in the control group by one way or another, and then maybe you leave, which would explain a massive difference in the rate at which people, if, you know, lots of people didn't complete, but they were evenly distributed between the two, you could say, maybe there's something about how hard it is for people to get to the place where they get the drug or whoever, but it, a, it doesn't need, it doesn't need discussion or explanation if it's a roughly equal, if it's roughly equal, but yeah. wildly unequal, either suggest that those people who were in the placebo group knew they were in the placebo group and weren't inclined to complete a trial where they weren't getting treatment for a, a disease they had that they can considered serious, or it suggests that the effect of the drug was significant enough that they could detect that they weren't getting better, right? So even in a blinded thing, if ivermectin worked, you could imagine that it would unblind itself in this way. Mm -hmm. But the, so the point is nothing adds up with respect to a drug that doesn't work and is being exposed to a randomized controlled trial that results in a large fraction of the people in the placebo group mysteriously dropping out asymmetrically, right? That just doesn't add up. So here's the question. If randomized controlled trial is the gold standard, 
This was not a randomized controlled trial, and yet, according to the Wall Street Journal, it's the largest randomized controlled trial that's been done on this topic. So the point is, nothing in this, even superficially, passes muster. And what's more, if you think about what was, you know, one of the few good things about the way the pandemic unfolded was mm-hmm. that at the very beginning of the pandemic, science was being done out in the open. Was peer review happening? Well, review by peers was certainly happening. It was happening on this podcast and elsewhere as people were looking at science that was emerging that hadn't yet gone through the the official process of peer review. It was amazing. We talked about it. It felt like the Wild West. The preprint servers were just full. They were just, you know, hundreds more papers weekly. And it was extraordinary. It was the actual studies. And were the actual studies all good? No. But you could look at them and you could say, well, here's what's wrong with this one. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, this one actually looks pretty good because they accounted for the thing that would trip up, you know, another methodology. So actual review by peers happened in this case early on. The later we have gotten, the more this has been inverted. And I just want to point out how perfectly the inversion worked here. Mm. The inversion worked so that what we got here was not the ability to scrutinize anything. In fact, we were denied the ability to scrutinize anything for more than six months. What we got was a conclusion that matched somebody's desire, right? Mm -hmm. And then the point was, well, what are the chances that that's what the study actually says and that it does so on the basis of sound science and sound philosophy of science? Right? Many of us thought the chances were low, but there was no ability to do exactly what we're supposed to do, which is go in there and look and say, well, how good was your methodology? Your methodology could be good, but maybe you didn't follow it. How good was your methodology, and did you follow it? Yep. And in this case, um, what we see is, oh, it's garbage. Long after the six-month period in which people uh, portrayed this trial as definitive, and long after the Wall Street Journal and others touted this as, well, the evidence is finally in, right? Now, what are the chances that all of the people who got suckered a few days ago and saw the Wall Street Journal touting this are going to find Phil Harper or Alexandros Marinos or Chris Martinson or any of these people, right? The point is... This is a way to sell a conclusion as science-based when the science itself is not robust. That's, that's exactly right. Um, I was struck uh, by actually one of the finds that Alexandros made uh, with regard to the, the dosing. Uh, right. So the protocol says uh, that the dosing given in the ivermectin arm was, is it 400 micrograms per kilogram of body weight for three days? Um, but, uh, he went digging into the supplement, the protocol supplement, you know, again, not the entire data set, but the protocol supplement and the detail that he finds there is that actually that's not true. Um, that that's only true up to body weights of 90 kilograms. And then it sort of, it, it just, it, it tops out and there's no justification for that either given or anywhere else in the ivermectin literature. Right. And what that means is that for people who are, frankly, pretty much, you know, most people above 90 kilograms are probably overweight, not all. You know, some people are tall. Um, but, um, but in general, the greater chances you have of being overweight, the greater chances you have of having been underdosed uh, in this trial with regard to ivermectin. And there's nothing except hidden in the supplement um, by someone who was really trying to figure out what happened um, to indicate that at all. And so, you know, it, 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 
this is just one example, and there are lots of these examples, but there's just so many ways that the study did not do what it claimed to do. And then you have places like Newsweek saying, well, basically, the, the jury came back. Yep. And it's like, that's not what we're doing here. Oh, wait, actually, apparently it is. Because the jury came back means Newsweek and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and HuffPo, and I'm just making places up because I assume everyone has written their ridiculous piece except at the conclusion from the authors or from, you know, New England Journal of Medicine's press, of Medicine's press release and um, hasn't taken the time and probably doesn't have the, the chops of the wherewithal to actually go in and check or even to look at, you know, any of these analyses that have been done by the people you've mentioned. I would also point out that this is not just a matter of lay people not having the chops to go in, right? Um, it shouldn't be the case, but scientists all too frequently look at the title and maybe the abstract of something and assume that the work is done well. And it is amazing how frequently sure. one goes into a paper and one sees that actually even the abstract isn't justified by the, the method section, for example. Oh, very often. Um, yeah, it's, it's really common. Um, and, you know, methods, methods are tough if you're outside of your particular field. And they're, they're just, they're hard to read, uh, but they are necessary if you're actually going to decide that what it is that the authors have claimed uh, is true. I would also point out that the one thing I will say, um, you know, by way of steel manning this trial, which I really don't feel like deserves it because the the number of things that everyone are, else is steel manning it for us. Yeah, but even <laughs> so, just the number of things that are wrong in the same direction does mm -hmm. not suggest good faith. How that yeah. happened, I don't know, but um, it's it's conspicuous. And so, you know, my feeling is steel manning only makes sense when the thing on the other side is a different perspective, and you want to give it its due. But it doesn't really have a due if it's if it's cheating. Fair enough. Um, but uh, what was I going to say? I was going to say, um, oh yeah, it is very, let us admit that, or just acknowledge that a, a study like this is hugely complex, right? Yes. And it's not only complex at the level of, well, what would the study have to do and what things would have to be compared in order to um, to accomplish the goal. And, you know, lots of things that viewers of this podcast will be well familiar with, like, uh, you know, you can sabotage a trial or you can screw it up by treating too late, right? Things like that. Or you mm -hmm. could, in the case of ivermectin, you could give it um, without food so that it wouldn't uh, cross the gut. You as know, they did. As they did, right? But the point is, there's lots of complexity. Or they recommended that it be taken on an empty stomach. Right. What are the chances that you would do a study of this complexity without making some errors? I'd say they're effectively zero. Yeah, there will be some errors. Now, it's been a lot of months since the result came out. So, you know, there, I think one of the things was like, there. I don't remember even what the numbers were, but it's like, was it 228 or 288? I don't even remember where in there, but it's like, yeah. well... You know, typos happen, mistakes happen in the relating of results. If they happened in the original data, that's a big problem. But also, there's been a lot of time for a lot of people on a study this big with this many authors to really go through and check and check and check. Yeah, and there's also a right way to deal with it. Either your study is uh, so compromised by the errors that you don't publish it mm -hmm. because it's not evidence, 
or it's compromised in a way that, let's say, you lose some fraction of the individuals who were in the study because they discovered they were in the placebo group, for example. And right. so it's, that part of the study is no longer placebo controlled, yep. but some other group wasn't aware, right? Mm -hmm. So then the point is, then you scale back what study you publish so that the study you publish is actually evidence of something, mm -hmm. right? And the point is, okay, they made errors. Yeah. Some of the errors may yeah. just be the normal fact of a complex study, but the point is there's a right honorable way to deal with the errors that you make in a study such as that, and that didn't happen here. It didn't happen at the, at the editor level. It didn't happen at the level of the peer reviewers. It didn't happen at the level of how this evidence emerged into public. You know, it's one yeah. thing to see a preprint where you get to see the conclusion of the study and you get to see how the study was done and you can compare them. It's another thing to get to see the conclusion and not be able to see how the study was done. There's no preprint. And then, then the point is this is PR, right? Mm -hmm. This was effectively a, a PSYOP as so much in this neighborhood has been. And so anyway, final thing I want to say is science is supposed to work, right? And I don't mean science, the philosophy of science, scientific method, but science, the practice of science in modernity, is supposed to work on the basis that we want things explored. We society want things explored. We provide incentives that come to those in a position to do the work in the form of jobs in the form of promotions in the form of grants in the form of prizes right all of these things are given for high quality work that elucidates stuff in a way that is good and those incentives draw people to discover things right but if those incentives are not not targeted at hey discover what the truth of ivermectin is but they're targeted at here's a story that we need to be supported by science looking stuff they can do that too if you give the prizes and the jobs and the promotions and the grants to people who come up with a story that some very powerful entity wants told then that's what science will do and in this particular case we do know that you know the apparatus surrounding anthony fauci is the behemoth of grant awarding right that thing is in a position to control a huge fraction of the money which serves the purpose of the incentive in the system. So what that has to do with how this trial came about, we don't know. But the fact that you would get a trial that uh, claims to be essentially definitive by claiming the mantle of what they have called the gold standard, which I will argue is actually about something else, but we've been told randomized control trial is the gold standard, right? This trial can claims to be the largest randomized controlled trial of this particular treatment, and it comes to a conclusion that is, well, treatment doesn't work, right? That is how you tell a story. And the fact that it wasn't a randomized controlled trial, right, uh, that it pretends to be one but isn't one, is part and parcel of what's going on here. So my, my claim is going to be that this idea that randomized controlled trial is the gold standard is actually a trope of sorts. There is a way in which it can be true. If a randomized control trial is done well, right, if, it, if the philosophy of science underneath it is sound, if the methodology is good, and if the methodology is followed well, then it is going to be the best way to elucidate especially a subtle pattern, right? However, I don't think that's why it is being shoved at us as the gold standard. It's being shoved at us because it is the most gameable, right? Because just as a good methodology uh, is amplified by randomized controlled trial, a bad methodology is too. And 
Well, it's gameable, but I would say another point in its favor, in scare quotes, is that it can't be done by individuals without uh, large backing. Oh, right. So, uh, so you know, you, you can't come in and, and, you know, and try to understand the study in retrospect the way that uh, the way that Alexandras and Matthew and Phil and Chris and, you know, and, and are and that we have in, in a lot of other places. And, you know, that's that is as it should be. But in order to and and you know we we have ourselves done not in this not in this sphere um, but a lot of uh, very low tech low cost science and in fact I used to encourage this um, not just for myself but for my students like you 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 don't want something that's going to require a lot of money because then then you're not nimble then you can, you know then you can't move at the point that your funders say actually I don't like what you're doing. Right. And that's not to say that there aren't questions that deserve to be asked and that are important for humanity that they be asked and answered that require a lot of money. There are. But there are also a lot. There's too many incentives to push money towards being more expensive than it needs to be. Did I say money that pushes science towards being more expensive than it needs to be? Uh, because that renders those people doing the science incapable of getting out. So RCTs, randomized control trials. We can't do those. Right. Individuals can't do those. Right. Individuals can't do that. You're right. That's another, it, from the point of view of something that wishes to control the narrative, that is a major feature, right? That they somebody can't easily bootstrap one. So they're highly gameable methodologically, uh, and individuals can't uh, can't do them because they're too expensive. I, I think these are both driving driving forces here. I guess the last thing I would say is there is a conspicuous oddness to the TOGETHER trial, which I haven't heard discussed in this last phase, which is that it oddly, given what it did here with ivermectin, concluded that fluvoxamine was highly effective, right? Now, my point would be... And that result was then published within a couple of weeks, back in August. Yeah, immediately. so here's the question. That did not, as far as I'm aware, radically change the standard of care so that people who had COVID were getting fluvoxamine. Why didn't it? If the idea is, well, we'd give them ivermectin if a randomized controlled trial said it worked, okay, it did with fluvoxamine, what happened to that, right? So anyway, I don't, I'm, I'd be interested to hear what the answer is on that front, but I think the point is all of this looks like... Um, you know, the little people, the riffraff, and by the riffraff, I mean us, mm-hmm. right, need to be placated or dismissed in some way. And there's going to be enough science-looking stuff to make that happen. And um, the most annoying thing is that when we try to hold them to any standard whatsoever, it's obvious that they're not adhering to one. Right. Well, there are a whole lot of people wearing science-ish hats. <laughs> science-ish hats. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, boy, you said a lot of things that... Prompted me to want to go immediately to all the different places I want to go, and probably won't get to all of it. But let me just let me jump before um, going into this uh, the need for evidence based medicine piece that was published a week and a half ago or so. Um, without the introduction that I will later give it, um, I had uh, the honor of reading and gosh. Is it Matthias or Matthias? I'm not sure. Um, Matthias Desmet's. Yeah. I, I I had the honor of reading Matthias Desmet's uh, book. Uh, the Origins of Totalitarianism in its English translation, uh, published by Chelsea Green uh, Publishing, and um, this week, and it's going to be out again, maybe June first. I'm not sure. Like our Spanish Spanish edition of our book and and the English edition of <clears throat> Desmet's book are both out in June. June comes at you fast. June 
probably will be coming out as fast. Yes. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And uh, in advance of that, you, Brett, are going to do a podcast with him. And um, I expect that's going to be a terrific conversation. And I got to say, this book is just terrific. And it, you know, it, it pushed me and there's some stuff in here that I don't agree with. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to frame it. You know, he's a, I think he has a background in psychology, but he does history um, and history of science and science. And he just does a lot of really terrific things. So I want to read a few excerpts, but something you just said now, probably 10 minutes ago, prompted me to want to read this excerpt first. This is, um, I don't remember what chapter it's from. The use of numbers in this crisis. So here he's talking about COVID, okay? Um, pandemic, the last two years. The use of numbers in this crisis makes us barely realize that what we do respond to are not so much the facts, but the stories constructed around facts. Mm. Those stories are spun by healthcare workers who genuinely do their best to help, by people who don't want to see their families suffer, by politicians who want to make the right decisions, by academics who want to provide information as objectively as possible. However, they are also constructed by politicians who are under the pressure of public opinion and feel compelled to act decisively by leaders who have lost control and see their opportunity to take back the reins, by experts who have to hide their ignorance, by academics who see a chance to assert themselves, by man's inherent propensity for hysteria and drama, by pharmaceutical companies that smell dollar bills, by media that thrive on sensational stories, by ideologies that see in a technocratic totalitarian system the only solution to the seemingly insoluble problems of our time. So this is this is this is this is brilliant and there's so much in his book in which he's basically railing and that sounds like he's unhinged which he really really is not uh, again this is desmet um in his book the origins of totalitarianism which is going to be published in english in a couple of months by chelsea green um in which he takes on uh the reductionist strictly materialist in his framing uh and this is where i kind of i glitch a little bit um but the, re the very reductionist um, view of science that then gets handed down to people as if all they have to do is trust the people who say they're doing the science and then they too are living in a science state of, of mind and uh, they too can hope for sort of a utopian infinite life future in which there are no problems, right? And you know what, what he reveals here in part is not just are the numbers not our saviors, but we're not even actually responding to the numbers. The numbers on their own don't don't usually compel people. They compel some of us, right? They they numbers numbers and well but not manipulative manipulatively created graphs and tables will actually compel those of us who are who are driven to find meaning in numbers, but that's not most people. And even those of us uh, for whom that is true, the vast majority of us still find meaning in story easier. And it's easier to remember at an emotional level, at a visceral level. And so what has happened to us, to all of us, regardless of where we fall in terms of what we believe and what we don't believe and what we think is going on these last two years, is we have, we have been handed a series of stories. And very often we don't even know that because we think we're saying, oh, but, you know, newest study says ivermectin doesn't work, so it doesn't work. What are you, a horse? <laughs> yeah, that. Right. Um yeah, I I wonder sometimes if people don't need to spend a little bit of time just you can tell a lot about the story you're being handed by figuring out what the alternatives that could fit in the same moment in history would be, mm -hmm. right? Like what what do people think would have happened if pharma had discovered that there was a vast new market 
for novel, patentable, profitable products, and it was unnecessary because a drug that had gone out of patent was too effective. What do they think pharma would have said and done? Do they think pharma would have said, we are so lucky that one of our past successes that can now be produced by anybody because it's out of patent uh, is capable of controlling this pandemic and, um, you know, it would have been nice from our perspective if this had been a business win, but, um, but it turns out that humanity is luckier than that and we are, we are grateful. Do, uh, does anybody think anyone in business ever sounds like that, right? Right. Um, that said, I think this is a good moment to actually to read another. So, so. Wait, I want, I want to take back one thing I said. I think a few people in business do sound like that, but the idea... Yeah. That's, that an entire industry would have reacted that way, I think, is preposterous. Anyway, go ahead. Um, so let, let me actually just uh, kind of introduce the book. So Matthias Desmet, as many people listening uh, will know, will recognize his name, uh, is uh, has publicized the idea of mass formation, also known as mass formation psychosis. Uh, the English, you can show my, uh, my screen here, Zach, for a minute. The English version of his book, the English translation, translation of his book, is being published by Chelsea Green, uh, which is just an extraordinary publishing company. It's one that I had already been familiar with, but you go through and you find, um, you know, books um, about orchards and farming and COVID-19 and pipelines and, um, you know, cob houses and you know, all sorts of things. It's just, it's just um, so lovely. And I'm not going to do that now. Thanks, Chelsea Green. Um, but okay, I can, I can take my screen back here. Um, oh, and I mean, I actually first came to be, I think, fully aware of Chelsea Green uh, at the point that we were reading uh, Derek Jensen's books back, uh, boy, middle mid aughts probably, uh, before we knew him, as we are as we are lucky to to know him now. Uh, so you know, he is a radical environmentalist and an extraordinary educator as well. So this book, um, in this book, Matthias Desmet lays out uh, just an, a remarkable history, and I'm not. I, I, I could have written up an entire uh, description of what it is that he's doing here, but I think uh, we'll we'll just do some excerpts here, and then you'll have a conversation with him in in several weeks, and then I will encourage everyone to read the book, and I'll put the link to the pre-order in the show notes as well. Um, but he, you know, he talks about Hannah Arendt uh, in the '40s, I think I've forgotten now, uh, talking about, of course, the origins of totalitarianism and talking about mass formation, and also a French philosopher named Le Bon in 1895, I believe, talking about this phenomenon. So this is not this is neither new with Desmet nor new right now, nor is you know Robert Malone, who has helped you know publicize uh, Desmet's work, responsible for causing a bunch of people to believe in something that he just pulled out of thin air. Uh, you know, this, this, not that old ideas are inherently good or new ideas are inherently bad, but this is a concept. This idea of mass formation has been uh, bandied about by very smart people who have seen a lot of truth that other people have not seen for well over 100 years at this point. Yeah, I, I would just say people should check out um, Chris Martinson's chat with him. They have a they have a podcast with Desmond. Yes. Oh, I did not know Excellent. that. That's uh, that's terrific. I'll bet it is. Um, okay, so chapter seven, the leaders of the masses. Um, this is two pages. The chapter's longer than that. The excerpt I'm going to read is the beginning of chapter seven, which is two pages. In the previous chapter, I described the again. This is from Desmet's uh, the origins of totalitarianism. 
In the previous chapter, I described the phenomenon of mass formation, the psychological basis of totalitarianism, as a form of hypnosis. However, there is an important difference between mass formation and classical hypnosis. In classical hypnosis, only the field of consciousness of the hypnotized person is narrowed. The person who conveys the hypnotizing story, the hypnotist, is awake. In mass formation, to the contrary, the person who conveys the story is usually in the grip of the story as well. In fact, this person's field of attention is usually even more narrow than that of the masses. The reason is clear. The leader usually fanatically believes in the ideological basis of the narrative, not in the narrative itself that controls the masses. So this is, I'm just stepping aside from the quote for a moment, this is a really critical distinction. He's not saying that the leader who is effectively uh, hypnotizing masses in mass formation believes the narrative, but he believes that the reason he's doing it is so honorable because he believes in an ideology that it's for their, it's it's for everyone's good, it's for the best, it's what needs to happen in order to attain the goal uh, that he or she fervently believes. It's a noble psyop. <laughs> it is a noble psyop. Back to, back to Desmond's words. With respect to the leaders, with respect to the leaders, mass formation gives rise to two opposing attitudes. Either one trusts the leaders blindly and disappears into the mass, or one completely disrupts them, distrusts them, and sees them as people who knowingly carry out an evil plan, i.e. conspirators. In a certain sense, both extreme perspectives are based on a similar misunderstanding. They fallaciously endow the leaders with a virtually absolute knowledge and power. The first group does so in a positive sense, the second group in a negative sense. Other misconceptions are that the leaders are primarily driven by money, i.e. follow the money and cui bono, or sadistic pleasure, i.e. they have a psychopathic or perverted personality. Such statements are not really confirmed by historical research either. To give one example, the head of the Nazi party had a reluctant attitude toward illicit profits, and personalities with tendencies towards perversion and psychopathy were systematically excluded from recruitment. As opposed to the classical criminal who finds an intrinsic pleasure in violating social rules, in this case, totalitarian criminality lies more in the uncritical and mindless adherence to a system of totalitarian social rules, even when the system becomes radically inhumane and transcends each and every ethical boundary. Hence Hannah Arendt's famous expression that totalitarianism was a true demonstration of the banality of evil. Totalitarianism is not about monstrous people. It is about normal people who stick to a morbid, dehumanizing way of thinking or logic. In the initial phase of the totalization process, such a logic first takes hold of the population. The masses, or at least a large part of the population, become imbued with certain ideological convictions that to them are no longer distinguishable from reality. The emerging mass movements of pan-Slavism and pan-Germanism in Russia and Germany in the early 20th century are good examples. Germans typically became convinced that, as a race, they were superior to others, and that stigmatization and oppression of, amongst others, Poles and Jews, could be justified by, quote, the facts. We see something similar happening during the coronavirus crisis, where a certain segment of the population is becoming convinced that the facts justify the social discrimination of people who refuse to be vaccinated. The numbers show that they are spreading the virus, don't they? These dynamics slowly give rise to the emergence of totalitarian parties and totalitarian leaders who gradually institutionalize this logic and impose it on society. And this typically happens in a fanatical, blind, and merciless way. Hitler believed that his strength came from his ability for, quote, ice-cold reasoning, and Stalin believed that the secret of his success lay in his, quote, merciless dialectics. Races that were unfit for life and dying classes were, under the justification of this logic, expelled from society with surgical precision. For this reason, what characterizes the leaders of the masses is not greed or sadism, but their morbid ideological drive. 
reality must and will be adjusted to the ideological fiction. This is critical, I think, in part because one of the questions we often get asked is, does this require conspiracy? Does what we are seeing around us require conspiracy? And one of the things that we get accused of, of course, is being conspiracy theorists. And of course, that word is just weaponized and that phrase is just weaponized and meaningless at this point. And, um, from its origin. From what? From its origin. What does that mean? Um, the phrase conspiracy theory uh, mm. emerges, and this is debated by various people, but it emerges in a document in which I believe it is the CIA argues um, in favor of using this to effectively stigmatize people who were not satisfied with the Warren Commission's explanation of what happened to John F. Kennedy. Um, and so the idea that this was a way to get rid of an entire kind of inquiry mm -hmm. is uh, from the outset. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, no one intelligent, and I don't mean educated, I mean intelligent, um, of which there is some overlap, um, not total in either direction, uh, should imagine that conspiracies don't exist in the world. They certainly do. If your bias is to see conspiracy everywhere, every time anything happens, uh, you are no doubt seeing it too many places. And if your bias is to say that it never happens anywhere, then your bias is, is in the opposite direction and is also an error. Uh, but what Desmet lays out here, following again from Arendt and this philosopher Le Bon, with whom I was not previously um, familiar, is that uh, it's in order for the leaders of something that becomes mass formation to take place, what you need is ideological certainty and a belief that they are doing the right thing. They do not need to be greedy. They do not need to be conspirators. They do not need to be sadists. They do not, you know, they, they, they actually don't need to be driven by any of the other things, many of which presumably many of them are also driven by, but it's not necessary. So um, there's obviously a lot that uh, one could extrapolate uh from here too. And one thing that uh, I think is important is the way in which something that was suffused through all of the functional apparatus of Western civilization, everything from, uh, you know, from the, the Democratic Party to the major newspapers um, to the regulatory apparatus to Twitter, right? Mm -hmm. They are all suffused with something in advance of the totalitarian impulse, right? And so uh, I and others have talked about William Binney describing the uh, turnkey totalitarian state, the idea that totalitarianism is built around you, but it's not turned on at first. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's a very much more frightening thing because you don't see it. It doesn't look like totalitarianism until somebody flicks the switch on it. Um, but there's a way in which this organically happens too, right? If the idea is that everybody... You know, everybody through all of the control architecture of Western civilization went through college somewhere, right? And as they went through college somewhere, they were fed something that was um, very simple about mm -hmm. right and wrong and which side they were on and who the bad people were. Mm -hmm. And at the point it was handed to them, it was just sort of an impassing kind of observation that Western civilization is fundamentally racist, for example, right? Right. You can accept that. And if nobody's saying what you're supposed to do about it, then the point is, oh, well, I guess I believe that. And then the point is, at the point they come knocking and they say, well, you remember how you agreed that Western civilization was racist? 
here's what that requires you to do, right? Mm-hmm. Your obligation, so as to not be complicit, is now X, Y, and Z. You have to go after all of the people who don't agree, right? For example. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a version of give them an inch, they take a mile. Once, once you've agreed to one of the premises that, um, that you know, may or may not be true, uh, if if you can be held to that by your own moral standards, then you can actually have your morality twisted out from under you. Right. You have to have some sort of an active process so that, A, you're either the kind of skeptical person who, when they hear Western civilization is racist, their question is, what do you mean by that exactly? Right. Right. Um, or you've got to be the kind of person who, when they come knocking and they say, remember how you agreed that Western civilization was racist? Well, now here's what you're required to do about it. The answer is, uh, in what way does this follow? And can we go back to your original assertion? Because I was always a bit in doubt about what you meant. Mm-hmm. Do you mean there has been racism throughout, that there have been lots of barriers placed in people's way? I agree. Do yeah. I agree that that's the fundamental nature of what Western civilization is about, that that's its, you know, sin qua non? Right. No, I don't agree. Right. right. And, you know, it's very hard to be either one of those, right? It's yes. a lot of energy to be resisting when it seems like nothing's at stake. Well, um, so, I mean, I could I could read excerpts all day, and I'll, I'll only do a couple of, of more, but one of the things I'm reminded of from what could have been a three-page excerpt, but I, but I won't do it, is, you know, he says, Desmet argues, as, <clears throat> as we have, as many others have, there's basically sort of three groups um, of, of people. And, um, I mean, you've, you, I remember you describing this before Evergreen blew up, in fact. As four groups. Okay, go for it. So describe, describe those groups and then I'll fit that yeah, into what I put on here. the board two days before, uh, 50 students I'd never met showed up at my classroom yeah. accusing me of racism, uh, that there were four groups. There were a small number of people who will lead, who will instigate a witch hunt. There's a large number of people who will go along with them. There's an even larger group of people who will say nothing. Um, and then there's a tiny group of people who will stand up and say witches don't exist, and those are your witches. Excellent, excellent. Um, so uh, he just hasn't named the leaders as one of the groups here, that's all. Um, we've identified three groups that form in a mass arises. The masses, the masses themselves, who truly go along with the story and are hypnotized. He estimates about 30%. A group that is not hypnotized but chooses to not go against the grain usually about 40 to 60%, he estimates, this again, Desmet, and a group that is not hypnotized and actively resists the masses, ranging from 10 to 30%. Okay, that's us, right? Probably. The the people who are listening, um, hopefully there are some in that middle group. I think there's very few in the first group who are, who are listening here, although I would hope so. He then proceeds, and I, um, I, I won't read the whole thing here, to describe what it is that if you are in that third group, the group that that is not hypnotized and is actively resisting the masses, what, what you should be doing and why, what the value is in it. But the, the, the key of it, the central nugget is the first and foremost guideline for members of this third group is that they should let their voices be heard and in as sincere a way as possible so as not to let the resonance of the dominant hypnotic voice become absolute. Mm. Do it whatever way you can. Do it in the grocery store, do it on screens, do it with your family. You know, just do not simply be quiet and assume that this will pass because that will be how they win. That will be how the dominant hypnotic mass voice becomes the only voice that anyone can hear. And so then that first group grows in size and it's pulling from the second group, but the second group may be growing in size too, maybe pulling even from those who are currently not hypnotized. Um, 
in his book mm-hmm. uh how how extensively does he go into a connection with Rene Girard does he I don't think uh at all it's not there interesting I don't I it's not I the document I have isn't searchable so I can't I, I don't think so so it seems to me that there's like a whole little cluster of uh people who have studied the same but apologies i may be misremembering aspects of the same phenomenon uh gerard desmond arendt um stanley milgram ash solomon ash of course yep uh yeah okay no that's not that's not true i can search it and gerard isn't in here not in there ashes interesting Mm -hmm. um but anyway it's the number of places where you have some version of, you know, the people are hypnotized by something. What is it, yeah. right? Is it the the the, uh, the lab coat of the experimenter in Stanley Milgram's case mm-hmm. that causes people to reflexively go into a subordinate phase in which they'll shock somebody to death because a scientist told them to? Is it anonymous peers in the case of Ash? Right. Is mm-hmm. it a need to scapegoat in order to find cohesion in society in Gerard's case? Sorry, not anonymous stranger peers. Not yeah. Anonymous, but yeah. Um, anyway, all of these things are clearly explorations of a related set of phenomena at Absolutely. the very least Absolutely. and uh, how important is it that we figure this out because we're just going to keep living it again and again it is so critical so i am going to uh, read one more short excerpt from from desmet and then two sentences but um here we go again all i have is the page numbers i don't remember what chapter this is from The catalyst for mass formation is a suggestion in the public sphere. If, under the aforementioned circumstances, a suggestive story is spread through the mass media that indicates an object of anxiety, for example, the aristocracy under Stalinism, the Jews under Nazism, the virus, and later the anti-vaxxers during the coronavirus crisis, and at the same time offers a strategy to deal with that object of anxiety, there is a real chance that all the free-flowing anxiety will attach itself to that object, and there will be broad social support for the implementation of the strategy to control that object of anxiety. This process yields a psychological gain. Firstly, the anxiety that previously roamed through society as a tenebrous, tenebrous fog is now linked to a specific cause and can menti- be mentally controlled via the strategy put forward in the story. Secondly, through a common struggle with the enemy, the disintegrating society regains its coherence, energy, and rudimentary meaning. For this reason, the fight against the object of anxiety then becomes a mission laden with pathos and group heroism. For example, the Belgian government's team of 11 million going to war against the coronavirus. Thirdly, in this fight, all latent brewing frustration and aggression is taken out, especially on the group that refuses to go along with the story and the mass formation. This brings on enormous release and satisfaction to the masses, which they will not let go of easily. Wow. Yeah. So much of that is resonant from now a couple of chapters of our recent life right Mm -hmm. it just it's unmistakable right that you you're the experience is certainly one of facing a hypnotized group it's like sleepwalkers and yeah and and simultaneously i'm i'm the enemy right (laughs) what 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 happened and and so and and many many in our audience will have experienced this um in at least some ways in these last two years at this point you know whether or not 
um, you know, wherever they think the virus came from, whatever they think of the vaccines, whatever they think of early treatment. If you're spending any time listening to us, you probably don't simply accept everything that comes out of the CDC's and NIH's mouthpieces mouths, right? And so you probably occasionally say something that causes people to go, what now? And it's like, it's, there's a laser focus on, on the person who dissents, on the person who dissents as uh, a place to focus the anxiety. Like, ah, I now see it. I now see that you're the enemy. And now that I have an enemy, um, I know what I can do. All I have to do is get rid of the enemy. Right. And, and, and it's done. It's amazing how something has caused um, the paradoxical and ironic idea of scientific consensus, sudden scientific consensus, to be the good. It's not a thing. Right? The yes. gra gravitating to the sudden consensus puts you on the side of good. And who are the enemy? The enemy are people who are resisting sudden scientific consensus. And the answer is, sorry, scientific consensus is either over something trivial that's yeah. very easily demonstrated and therefore it only takes once, you know, if you drop a hammer and a feather on the moon, they fall at the same rate, right? Um, or, no, or, or some things over in physics space where it only takes once, um, like um, Einstein's observation of the gravitational of the gravitational of the lensing, yeah. uh, or you know, even so, that's know, not trivial. Even the multi-slit experiment, uh, yeah, you can see it in a single instance, right? Right, I agree with that. Um, but in terms of complex phenomena, right? right I mean, the, the thing is, the farther you get towards complexity, the more you're dealing with multiple inputs, the more you're dealing with noise, the harder it is to even describe the pattern in question, right? So the idea of sudden consensus around something like a new virus and what works to treat it and how it's going to react to the introduction of that treatment and all of that, this is no place for, it's, it's no place where sudden consensus is even conceivable. Um, yeah. So the idea that those who are the enemy are those who are resistant to the sudden consensus is like, well, I think you just, you know, painted a target on every single real scientist. Right. No. And that's um, those who are walking around trying to experience having a life uh, are presumably not trying to paint a target on every or every actual right. scientist. But that is the effect. And so just at the very at the end of that section that I just read. A couple paragraphs from, he writes, the masses believe in the story, not because it's accurate, but because it creates a new social bond. And I think this is a piece that is often missing from an analysis that relies entirely on, um, you know, but why do they believe that? Like, you know, it's not true. And uh, especially after two years of the kinds of um, behavioral modifications and and experiences that we've all had or rather failed to have via lockdowns and remote schooling and Zoom meetings and all of this, um, the, you know, the desire for people to have an actual social bond is even stronger than it was before, which is hard to imagine because we are above all social creatures. But uh, the idea that the story, you know, oh, I can offer you a social bond and it happens to come with a story that uh, just don't pay too much attention to the man behind the curtain. Cool. I'm not going to pay too much attention to the man behind the curtain because what I really like is now feeling like the in-group and like we're on the right path again and I'm moving towards the future and towards safety and hey, look at all my new friends. And that's just, it feels great to people and that, you know, that's part of why they tune in to you know, the mainstream media going, rah, rah, look at us. Aren't we, aren't we all on the right side of history? And 
that works as a sales pitch, regardless of whether or not you're actually on the right side of history. Yes, the desire to be in that group is so powerful that the what what is the group rallying around is secondary. And so lots of people yeah. who, you know, feel like, I mean, I remember in a prior era, right, the, um, the Democrats felt superior for being the Darwinists, right? They were never very good at it, right. but they were superior in their own minds for being the ones who had embraced this very important insight. Mm -hmm. And it is, as you know, you and I both know, a vitally important insight. But the point is most of the people who were feeling great about being on Darwin's team didn't really understand what the insight was or why it was so important. They just kind of um, had the sense that it was, you know, that the enlightened people were ahead in this regard, that Darwin's a little hard to swallow, but they were there early. I've actually got, uh, so Zach just put up my screen quickly. I've got a piece in HuffPo, this HuffPost, HuffPo, this week. Um, no, actually it's from March 15th, but I just saw it this week. Um, Herschel Walker, skeptical of evolution. Why are there still apes? Think about it. So, you know, this is a former NFL player who's now running for Senate who doesn't get evolution, and he's a conservative, and so the liberals are really excited to point out that he doesn't understand evolution. But you read this article, and I'm not going to do it, and I'm not going to recommend that you do, but I'll post in the show notes. And you see that the person writing the article doesn't get it either. Right. <laughs> um, you know, they, they sort of skirt around it, but it's clear they don't really know why what he said is false. They just have been assured that it's false. Right. And, and so, so, you know, this this struck me, you know, I didn't know you were going to say what you just said, but this struck me exactly. It's like, well, <clears throat> sure, aren't don't we feel virtuous for understanding this thing, except here too, like I can explain, I can explain to Herschel Walker or the or right. the author of this article why what he said, why he has, what his misunderstanding is and what it actually means that there are both apes and humans still here today. But neither of the people... And most of the people on both sides of this argument couldn't do it. And so it's entirely, it's back to that Newsweek thing. It's like, it's about, it's about judgment as opposed to reality and science. Right. Which leads to one of my least favorite moves in analytical space, right? Which is when somebody is caught in that bind, right? Where they know Herschel Walker is not onto something by having discovered that apes still exist, right? Mm -hmm. They don't know what's wrong with what he said. And so the point is, oh, the last thing I want to do is say he's wrong and then have somebody say, oh, really, why? Mm -hmm. So what they do is they amplify how obvious it is that he's wrong and how obvious it is why he's wrong. So that they basically bluff and they say, well, that's what anybody who doesn't well. know why that's wrong is a fool. Right. And so then the point is, if you ask the question, you're stepping into the role of fool, aren't you? So you wouldn't want to do that. So you're not going to ask me the question, are you? And it's created in order not to be asked, I mean, just as you said, like, okay, I don't want to have to pronounce anything here because the fact is I don't understand this. So I'm going to be really loud and bombastic about making fun of the people who think the other thing. It's exactly what we're seeing with regard to the the Together trial being published. You know, all, you know, both, both individuals and, and mainstream media pronouncing loudly what a, you know, what a fool Joe Rogan is. And, you know, and we are and all of this, right. like, n none of you actually have, have, <laughs> have bothered to try to understand the science. Right. You? No, they're, they're yeah. revealing how little they know about um, how the thought process even works, right. what the underlying philosophy of science that makes the engine function is, right? Yeah. They don't know. And they're revealing it to us. They're not revealing it to other people who don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, and so anyway, it's maddening 
um, but yeah. but nonetheless, it is effective. Yeah. Uh, so apologies for the noise, guys. It's a beautiful spring day, and we have the windows open today, and and a truck. Yes, and uh, that was the postman who looks like a famous celebrity whose name is slipping my mind. Oh, I think it's Does Owen he? Wilson. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it's not Owen Wilson, but he looks like him. <laughs> he was gone before I looked anyway. No, I think we've had this conversation you don't have before. To trust me. I will. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, couple more things uh oh wow it's after six okay a couple more things it's after six somewhere it's after six right here okay um this is a you can show my screen this is published actually same same moment that Herschel walker tough post kerfuffle happened um march 16th 2022 in the british uh medical journal BMJ stands for British Medical Journal, yeah. Um, an op-ed by two researchers called The Illusion of Evidence-Based Medicine. Uh, subheading being, Evidence-Based Medicine Has Been Corrupted by Corporate Interests, Failed Regulation, and Commercialization of Academia, argue these authors. Uh, and let me just read this paragraph. Um, which for some reason I've only highlighted all but the last line. The philosophy of critical rationalism, advanced by the philosopher Karl Popper, famously advocated for the integrity of science and its role in an open democratic society. A science of real integrity would be one in which practitioners are careful not to cling to cherished hypotheses and take seriously the outcome of the most stringent experiments. This ideal is, however, threatened by corporations in which financial interests trump the common good. This is not antithetical to what Desmond is arguing. It sounds like it might be, but it's not. He does not argue that there aren't possible uh, financial interests that are doing bad things in the world. Um, he's just saying you don't need that in order to see mass formation forming. Back to the op-ed. Medicine is largely dominated by a small number of very large pharmaceutical companies that compete for market share, but are effectively united in their efforts to expanding that market. The short-term stimulus to biomedical research because of privatization has been celebrated by free market champions, but the unintended long-term consequences for medicine have been severe. Scientific progress is thwarted by the ownership of data and knowledge because industry suppresses negative trial results, fails to report adverse events, and does not share raw data with the academic research community. Patients die because of the adverse impact of commercial interests on the research agenda, universities, and regulators. So that came out two weeks before the Together trial was finally published. The ivermectin arm of the Together trial was finally published, but it's uh, it's rather in keeping. So uh, it, it it actually is an excellent place to make a particular point. Great. Um, the we tend to think of actually I've been fighting this uh, battle a little bit since uh, since back in game B days when we say something like capture, mm -hmm. right? Capture, which is now a common phrase since COVID, is a common phrase in most people's minds. Capture is a reference to an earlier phrase, regulatory capture. Mm -hmm. And regulatory capture was a much narrower phenomenon than what we mean when we say capture, right? Capture is a very general phenomenon. It involves the capture of university professors. It involves the capture of uh, newspapers. It involves the capture of all the things that sway policy ultimately mm -hmm. and the regulators are one that's one core thing that you have to capture in order to get ahead through this sort of mechanism but anyway the point is the proper instantiation for the concept is not the specific one because if you say oh uh, what's going on as the result of regulatory capture then people only see the regulators and they say it's not a big enough that that couldn't be doing this mm -hmm. and the point is no 
zoom out, right? This is ex this is extended capture, as I think I've called it before. And unless you instantiate capture as something in which regulators are included, but it is not limited to them, you won't understand its its power. And so likewise, the concept of corruption, mm -hmm. right? Corruption. Is corruption about uh, bribery and financial incentives? It certainly includes that, but it can include lots of stuff. It can include prestige, right? There are lots right. of people who will be pers uh, who will be persuaded by prestige. Um, uh, as you will remember, I uh, used to argue about what what golf junkets were doing, what, why lobbyists were taking their clients on. Or clients is the wrong term, but their uh, targets on <laughs> targets, golf yeah. junkets. Yep. Yep. And uh, there was one instance in which there was a whole lot of prostitution going on in one of these golf junkets, and it emerged. And it struck me that essentially, look, you want to figure out the, the two most powerful incentives that you can use to persuade uh, at least men uh, are going to be money and sex, mm -hmm. right? And so a lobbyist who can figure out how to provide sex to somebody in a way that they get away with it, that their spouse is none the wiser and all of that, has a very powerful tool. You know, we could figure out what the value, the equivalent value is in money, and it's very large, mm -hmm. right? So anyway, the point is, corruption isn't about bribery. Bribery is a version, right? And uh, in any case, uh, what I would say is, you have to instantiate the system that, uh, the corruption of the system in terms of the incentives. What incentives? Whatever incentives persuade people. It will mm -hmm. include that full set, mm -hmm. right? And unless you're looking at that full set, then you will only have a partial picture of why people do what they do. So, you know, the, the authors there um, are arguing uh, about financial incentives, and Desmond is saying maybe it's not limited to financial incentives. And you're right. They're the same story. Mm -hmm. The question is, how narrowly are you zoomed in, right? Incentives persuade people. Ultimately, all of that stuff is driven by a system built to put your genes into the future, which none of these people are talking about, right? Yes. Bribery is proximate to gene spreading. And gene spreading is now crazy because lots of people are engaged in regulating their own production of offspring and so they're interrupting the very process that would unfold you know that their extra power would give them extra reproductive opportunities which they're now not using for reproduction right but mm -hmm. nonetheless um in what way will people be persuaded every way that they can right right oh that's great okay one last thing and then we'll uh then we'll go on to the Q and A, which we encourage uh, encourage you to ask questions for. Uh, were we gonna? Were we thinking about having a drink for the Q and A? Yes, that was your idea. You're, no. you're acting like I just proposed that. But... No, I'm. I have it all set up. The question oh. is, do I break it out now, or do we wait for the Q and A? I think I think we wait for the Q and A. Yes. Where? Okay. See. Wow. Okay. I know. I had no idea. Clearly, <laughs> actually, I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm not. I'm not that good an actor. Um. I can do impressions, though. Yes, you can. Yeah. Surprisingly well. <laughs> um, okay, so I have on this show and elsewhere uh, talked about the comic bookification of, of American culture. And specifically, I've talked about um, it seeming like uh, millennials um, 
who are woke have a particular tendency to imagine the world into purely good and purely evil. And, you know, they see anyone they disagree with as a supervillain and they see their their heroes as actual superheroes. And it's it's very unnuanced. It's very black and white. It's very unhelpful. Um, but while I was reading Desmond's book this week, I was reminded because he he quotes um, him um, of this quotation from Solzhenitsyn. I've, I've mentioned Solzhenitsyn in the past. We read some from his essay, Live Not by Lies, um, when we were also, um, gosh, that was back in October 2020. Um, but as I've mentioned here before, I was lucky to end up in a class on Solzhenitsyn and Kundera in my very first quarter of college when I was a literature major. Uh, and I read much of the Gulag, the Gulag Archipelago at that point. I had never, I'd read a bunch of Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and such in, in high school, um, but I'd never, I'd never even heard of the Gulag or Solzhenitsyn. Um, I might have heard of Gulags, but I'd never heard of this book. Um, and here is a quote from the Gulag that feels to me that it's, encompassing of a lot of what we've talked about today uh, and also relates very much to this idea that I have of the comic bookification of, of thinking. If only it were all so simple, he says. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. I, I've heard uh, Jordan Peterson refer to this very thing, um, and it's it's an important uh, an important insight. It is uh, the epitome of hubris to imagine uh, that you aren't capable of things that you have not yet done, um, and I guess uh, the opposite of hubris there would be um, underestimating yourself if it's um, that you imagine yourself not capable of positive things that you have not yet done simply because you haven't done them. Uh, we can all hope uh, to be our, you know, our best angels, um, but uh, no one is pure in either direction. Uh, there are there are some there are some people who approach monstrosity, and there are people who some people who approach sainthood, but they are extraordinarily rare. Mm -hmm. And mostly, it, that's done in retrospect with by mythologizing their stories. Yeah, that's right. That's that's actually right. Um, once you, once you start interacting with the uh, the actual day to day of of most people, you find that the monsters also like salad, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the saints um, were quick to anger and uh, and and yelled at dogs in the street or something. You know, uh, you know I, I I don't have anyone in particular in mind here, but that you know we all have we all have failings, and uh, even the monsters are actually human, and that doesn't mean that we ought to be uh, you know uh, forgiving of their monstrosities. But it is a uh, it is a huge and tragic error to see in each other supervillains and superheroes instead of humans with whom we can uh, sit down and talk for the most part. You're not claiming you can recognize a villain by the fact that they like salad, right? <laughs> I mean, that'd be cool. And I would give up salad if we could arrange a situation <laughs> like that. But You make a good salad, though, so I don't think, I don't think we should do that. But even still, it would be a small price to pay. <laughs> yeah, I was... Oh, boy. Now, I, I, I'm, I think I'm glad I picked salad because there's a lot of things I could have picked that now I'd be just dealing with this forever, dodging and weaving around. <laughs> like, no, it's not like that. It's not... Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, salad, yes. Right. Um, it's just, it's hard. I don't know. 
was going to say it's hard to hate on salad, but (laughs) (laughs) hard to hate on. So there's, you're going to be remembered for that. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. All right. Um, Well, we're, we are, uh, I think just about done. Uh, This was episode 121 of the Dark Horse live stream. We will be back next week, I think, at the normal time. Is there really Zachary. a normal time? <laughs> uh, and uh, there are in the next in the upcoming months there are going to be some day changes. Uh, uh, you know, uh, but uh, but we will keep on we will keep on coming, uh, in part because we had understood before I ever read Desmet's words here uh, that one of the things that it's important to do when you see uh, that there is a narrative that is taking over many people's brains and it does not feel right is to is to speak. And so we will keep doing that. And uh, we are grateful that you are here to hear us and um, grateful for the stories that you share with us as well. Oh, yeah. So they are they are extraordinary. And, you know, keep them coming. Apologies that we don't respond to to many of them. But uh, we really do appreciate hearing from you what you all are experiencing. Okay, you're looking at me like I'm crazy. No, (laughs) No. I know better. So you can ask questions uh, starting probably an hour ago, but um, now at www.darkhorsesubmissions.com for a Q&A. Uh, logistical questions, go to darkhorsemutter at gmail.com. Find us on our Patreons. Find us on my, find me on my Substack at Natural Selections. Go check out Hunter Gatherer's Guide, either in the English or soon to be the Spanish or French editions. And be good to the ones you love. Eat good food and get outside. And achieve greatness. <laughs> <laughs>